My name is Neil. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Neil. Hi, Neil. <clears throat> and my story, my story starts in, uh, I was born in New York City. I had a mom, a dad, uh, one real brother, and three half-brothers. And the three half-brothers, uh, two of them were junkies, and the other one was a preacher. And all three of them were assholes. And I learned real early that those are two things I didn't want to ever be when I grew up, was a junkie or a preacher. And I haven't had to do that yet. Um, when I was nine years old, we moved from New York to California, Southern California. And that was a complete change of life for me. It was like we went from the ghettos of Brooklyn to being middle class in virtually a weekend. You know, I mean, everything was different. It was, it was really neat. Um, and all through my childhood, my mom was a real religious woman, and she made sure that us kids went to church every Sunday. And, uh, you know, so I had a fundamental belief in God when I was a little kid. Well, when I was 12 years old, I was out riding bicycles with my brother, and he got hit by a car. And I remember being in the back of this police car, going to the hospital, and just praying like crazy that my brother was going to be okay. I mean, he was, you know, he was my brother. He was my best friend, you know. And at the exact moment that they told me my brother was dead, that belief in that God was gone. Just, just totally gone. And it's not like I chose to quit believing. It was just gone. It just wasn't there anymore. And it left a pretty big hole inside of me. You know, there was, I knew there was... There was a big something missing. In addition to my brother, there was something mis missing. And it was real soon after that that I had my first drunk. And, uh, and right out the gate, it did something for me. It changed the way I felt. You know, it took away the depression, the insomnia, the thoughts of suicide. It took all that stuff away. It made me feel good. It made me feel human and whole. So... Uh, you know, so I started drinking as often as I could. And, you know, when you're 12 years old, that's not particularly real often. It's like on weekends. But I, I did it as, as often as I could. And about a year later, I discovered other substances that did the same thing. They took me out of myself, you know. So I started using them all the time. Uh, when I was 14, year, 14 years old, uh, we moved up to Oregon. And my mom passed away up there. And I just took that as just one more personal affront from this God of my childhood, you know. And, uh, my dad and I ended up uh, leaving Oregon and moved to Central California. And uh, Central California was really neat. Uh, there was a little town called Pacific Grove right near Monterey. It was 1967. I mean, there were hippies everywhere. It was, it was a wonderful place to be a, a little dope-smoking kid, you know. And... And so I, you know, enrolled in school there and, and uh, proceeded to do my thing. Well, when my mom died, I start, started collecting Social Security from her death. And uh, when I was 17 years old, I got kicked out of high school. They, they kept having these things called locker checks, where they'd go into your locker and see what you had in there. And they did it twice in the same week, and both times I had a gallon of cheap red wine in there. And they invited me to go to school somewhere else. So I'd been thrown out of school. And when I turned 18, uh, because I wasn't in school anymore, the Social Security ended. So that means I had to find a job. And the first job that I found was uh, in a plastic factory. And the only reason 
I took that job or even applied for that job is I had friends that worked there and they would go in there and they'd work all day and they'd come out and they'd tell me how great it was to go in there and snort that resin all day and then walk out of there totally ripped and get paid for it. So that was my criteria for my first job, you know, and, and it was a great job. <laughs> you know, it did everything I wanted it to do. And when I was about 19 years, well, when I was 18, I had a girlfriend whose mom was a drunk. And this woman hated my guts. She would call the cops on us, on me, anytime she caught us together. She even shipped her daughter to Texas just so to try to break us up. You know, I mean, this woman hated me. And when I was 19, uh, this woman got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for whatever reason, started accepting me into their life and into the family. And it wasn't too long before she started asking me to come to meetings with her. You know, I mean, now I can see that she was doing 12-step work. But at the time, you know, I just wanted her to like me. You know, I was in love with her daughter. I wanted her to like me, so I would go to these AA meetings with her. And uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't get sober. I didn't even think about getting sober. When I was 19 years old, alcohol was not my problem. Alcohol was my solution. It's what I used to make life livable, you know. And so, I mean, I would, sobriety wasn't even in the picture, you know. And I, I kind of a funny thing. I I used to sit in these meetings, and you know, they have the window shades on the on the wall with the steps and the traditions in them. And I would read the one on the steps, you know, and, I, and I'd come to to step eight, and I'd, you know, look at it, and it says, you know, I made a list of all persons we had harmed, and became willing to make amends to them all. And I would sit there, and I'd think, you know, when is this woman going to make her list, you know? And when is she going to put me on it and make her amends to me? I mean, she's, she messed up my life for like a year and a half, two years, you know? And especially my love life, you know, and... You know, when you're 18 years old, the universe kind of revolves around that part of you, you know. So I'd sit there and think, you know, when is she going to make her amends? And, you know, as time went on, you know, I broke up with her daughter. And, and still once in a while I'd think about her mother, you know. i think, is she ever going to fess up and make her amends? You know, and finally I forgot about it until uh, one day when I was, in, I'd finally gotten sober, I was... I was sitting around just being being grateful, having a, doing a gratitude list, and it occurred to me that this woman did make her amends. Because back when I was 19 years old, she gave me Alcoholics Anonymous. So when my life went down the toilet, I knew there was somewhere to go. You know, so she actually had made her amends. Anyway, uh, like I said, this girl and I had eventually broke up and went our separate ways. And, and uh, I ended up getting a job in a restaurant and I found a chef who liked who I liked and who liked me, and I started following this chef around from restaurant to restaurant to restaurant to restaurant, learning how to cook. And we ended up in this little community way down uh, down in Big Sur, on the coast of California. And he decided to move on, and I liked it there, so I stayed. And I, I was working in this restaurant, and uh, pretty soon my life started getting kind of kind of bad, you know. And I could see it was the alcohol, you know. So I called up my ex-mother-in-law and I said, hey, uh, you know, I, I need to quit drinking. What should I do? And she said, well, come on up. We'll get you in a detox. We'll get you started in the program, find you a sponsor, blah, blah, blah. So I went up and she took me to this de- detox up in Santa Cruz, California. 
and it was a five-day detox, and uh, and I got in there and and uh, went through the detox, and when it got when they cut me loose, I I didn't know what to do, I didn't know where to go, <clears throat> so I hopped in my car and I drove back down to Big Sur, and went back right back to work in the same restaurant with the same people, uh, doing the same thing, you know. I didn't change anything, and, and I managed to stay sober for eight days. Now, that was a record at the time. And after a while, you know, a year or so later, my life started getting real miserable again. And I thought, well, <clears throat> you know, that detox didn't do anything magic for me. They just let me be there. I, I can do this on my own. So on Monday, I only drank a six-pack. On Tuesday, I only drank three beers. And on Wednesday, I ended up going into convul- convulsions on the kitchen floor in the restaurant. And I came to in the hospital, just freaked out, just scared to death. I realized, no, if I didn't drink, I was going to die. I was going to shake to death, you know. And so as soon as I got out of the hospital, I went straight to the liquor store and, and, you know, got myself some beers. And I went back to work, back to Big Sur, back in the same place, doing the same thing with the same people. Didn't change anything. And... um, after a while, my life started getting real miserable again. And I thought, you know, maybe maybe I should go try this detox again. So, so I did. I went back up to the detox. And they have a, uh, there's a it's this two-story building. The detox is on the bottom floor. And on the upper floor is a 28-day program. And uh, so I applied for the 28-day program, was accepted. And as soon as I got out of my detox, I went upstairs and, and started this program. And the way they ran it there at the time was that after you were there for two day, or two weeks, you'd get up in front of everybody and tell your story, kind of like I'm doing right now. And then the next day, you'd get back up there and everybody would tell you what an asshole you were. And it was the day before, or the night before I was supposed to tell my story, and I realized I couldn't do it. Because the way I'd been raised is we didn't share our emotions, you know. We, we didn't tell each other anything, and... And then from the age of 12 on, every time I felt something I didn't like or I didn't recognize, I took something to change it. So I had not only not learned how to, how to express my emotions, I didn't even know what they were. You know, I couldn't even recognize them. I couldn't identify them. So I realized I couldn't do this, and I threw my pack out the window, told them I was going for a walk, and never went back. What I did is I went back to Big Sur. Went back to work in the same restaurant with the same people doing the same thing. And I managed to stay sober 28 days that time. And uh, after about a year or so, my life started getting real miserable again. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this, maybe Big Sur is my problem, this community. If I get out of here, everything will be better. So I, I ended up moving on to a ranch with a friend of mine 16 miles out of Hollister, California. I'm just way the hell out in the middle of nowhere. And what I had done is, is I moved in onto this ranch with a cocaine dealer, and I got a job in a winery. And uh, needless to say, the geographic didn't work. <laughs> you know, I managed to live out there for about a year before I first I got thrown off the ranch, and I didn't have anywhere to live, so I, I couldn't keep the job. And what I did is I went back to Big Sur. And I went back to work in the same restaurant with the same people doing the same thing. Yeah, and, uh, and after a while, my life started getting real miserable again. And in, in fact, it was uh, 
the last day of November, 1983, I went to the secretary at work and I said, hey, you know, let's find somewhere for me to go to dry out. I, I can't do this anymore. And she started going through the yellow pages and uh, she saw this one place called Sun Street over in Salinas, California. And, and Sun Street is a men's alcohol recovery facility that was built by the winos of Skid Row for the winos of Skid Row. And I had seen it once, you know. And the only thing I remembered was barbed wire on the gate. So I thought it was, you know, some kind of prison camp for winos. And, you know, I'm this hippie free spirit from Big Sur. I can't, I can't do that. I said, let's look somewhere else. And, and at the time in Monterey, the hospital there had a 28-day program in it. And I, the month of November 1983, I just happened to have insurance. And so she called the hospital and said, you know, will I asked if they would take me and they said as long as this insurance is good with no problem and sure enough my insurance was good so i grabbed a six-pack of beer and hitchhiked into monterey and checked into this hospital and the hospital was really neat uh, i mean i learned a lot there i learned about my disease i learned about a uh, you know nutrition i learned all this good stuff and it was the first time that i'd gone into any kind of facility where i wanted to quit doing everything you know, uh, every other time I wanted to quit drinking. I could see where alcohol was knocking my dick in the dirt, but I didn't see where the non-habit-forming marijuana every night before you go to bed just to improve your dreams. I didn't see that as a problem. I didn't see the cocaine as a problem. I didn't see the psychedelics as a problem. But this time I wanted to quit doing everything. And uh, <clears throat> and I thought I pretty much had it dicked. You know, I thought I was going to be able to do this. And... Uh, the last Sunday of, that you're there, they give you a four-hour pass, and it's the only time that you're there that they allow you to leave the hospital grounds without a nurse in attendance. You know, uh, I mean, even when they took us to meetings, there was always a nurse with us. You know, but they'd give you a four-hour pass, and, and you could go do whatever you want. And my four, my last Sunday there happened turned out to be Christmas Day of 1983. And I thought I would go back down to Big Sur, get my motorcycle, bring it back up to Monterey, because Big Sur might be part of my problem. And Christmas Day of 1983, it was an El Nino year, and it was just raining like crazy. I mean, wind was blowing, the rain was coming sideways. It was, and anyway, I caught a ride down to Big Sur, got on my bike. Uh, everything was fine. I, st I even stopped at a couple of the bars to say hello and Merry Christmas, and everybody said, hey, Neil, looking good, way to go, real proud of you, and, and, I, and I even started back to the hospital early, you know, so I'm going up Highway 1 on my motorcycle, and I'm, and it's just storming like crazy, and I'm freaked, you know, because, I mean, it's storming, and I'm not used to riding this road sober, you know, I mean, it was scary, I got 800-foot cliff on this side, and a mountain on this side, you know, and there's, it's only two lanes, you know, and the wind's blowing me all over, and Anyway, I'm, I'm going along, and I, in my rearview mirror, I see this van coming really fast. And I pull way over to the side of the road, and, and this van comes up right beside me, and I look up, and it's a friend of mine waving a Christmas present. And I thought, cool, because I remembered he was going to give me this nice shirt for Christmas. So I pulled over, he pulled over, and I jumped in, he hands me the present. And then he hands me a mirror, and he hands me a straw, and I go, <laughs> and I stop, and I go, man, what did I just do? I mean, this was the first time in my life that I really never, ever wanted to get loaded again. And I had just done a big, fat line of coke. 
And it was the first time that something I had heard in a meeting really, really hit home. And that is you've got to have a spiritual defense against that first drink. And I didn't have it. You know, in this case, it wasn't a drink, but I ended up drinking again because of it. Uh, you know, and I, I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. I got back on my bike. I went back to the hospital in Monterey. And, uh, but I didn't tell anybody in the hospital that I had gotten loaded. Because if at the end of your time there, when you graduate, they give you this nice bronze coin. And if you screw up, you don't get the bronze coin. And I figured for eight grand, I wanted my bronze coin. <laughs> so I didn't tell anybody in the hospital that I'd gotten loaded. But I did share it in a meeting that night. Because I was told, I believed that you guys would, you know, would uh, respect my anonymity. And you did. You know, as far as I know, the hospital probably thinks I'm still sober from then. Anyway, when I got out of uh, the hospital, I, I tried to stay in town, but my boss kept calling me saying, hey, we need you to come back to work. And I ended up going back to work at that same restaurant with the same people, but I didn't drink right away. I figured I'd already blown up with the cocaine, so I'll just do that. I won't drink. Well, down in Big Sur, there was, there was, a, there was only one four-star restaurant in the whole community. And every January, I used to go up there and fill out an application, and every January, they would say, don't call us, we'll call you. Well, in January of 1984, they'd heard through the grapevine that I didn't drink anymore. And they just called me up out of the blue and said, hey, why don't you come up for an interview? And I said, okay. And to make that story real short, I got the job, and I was so happy about it that I started drinking again. And this job that I waited 10 years for, I lasted exactly five days before I was too drunk to show up. And, uh, and the feelings that I had that day, I, di- I didn't know what they were called. I learned those words in Alcoholics Anonymous. What I felt that day was pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. You know, I learned those words here, but I knew that. I knew the feeling sitting on the cliff above Big Sur. I wanted to die. And uh, apparently there was only one thing I wanted to do more than die, and that was live, because... Instead of killing myself, I took myself back to the hospital in Monterey, and I said, hey, you got to take me back, or I'm going to put a bullet in my brain. And the nurse there is going, well, you know, your insurance is no good no more. can't do that. Let's see where else we can find you. And she said, well, how about this place in Santa Cruz? And I said, no, I still owe them money from the last time. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, how about this other place? No, they want insurance or money. And Well, how about this Sun Street over in Salinas? And like I said, I'd seen Sun Street. Thought it was a prison camp, you know, and uh, and I said, "Well, go ahead, call them up and see if they got a cell for me." And what had happened at that moment is I had finally become willing to go to any lengths to get and stay sober, and if it meant I had to go to prison to do it, I was willing to do that. And I remember, and they said, "Yes, we got a bed for him. Send him over." And I remember driving over there. I don't remember praying. But I do remember this incredible feeling that everything was going to be okay. And I've come to accept that as a spiritual experience that kept me sober long enough for the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous to kick in. And that was not quick in coming either. (laughs) That took a while. Anyway, I, I got over to Sun Street, and contrary to what I thought, it was nothing like a prison camp. I mean, it had more freedom than any place I'd ever been in before. You know, and more importantly, they gave me three meals a day. They took me to meetings twice a day, and they didn't kick me out after 28 days because I was more than 28 days sick. 
you know. And they let me stay there for nine months as a resident. And then I stayed there another four years living in my bread truck outside of it on the street because it was a safe place to be. And I, that's what I needed. I needed a safe place to be. And, uh, and I started trying to get active in the program, but I had some problems. Uh, one of them was this God thing. You know, I just, I just didn't believe. And I also had a problem with trust. I couldn't find anybody that I trusted. You know, and the other one was honesty. You know, and I, I knew I knew I needed honesty to stay sober. And I was a pathological liar. I would tell you a lie when the truth would serve me better. You know, I mean, just, I lied. That's what I did. I always lied. And I had to learn to quit doing that. I had to learn to be honest. And I had to do that just like not drinking. I had to not lie to you one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time, one sentence at a time. I had to learn to tell the truth. And I had to learn to quit stealing. Um, you know, and, and I, I just, I had to learn to be honest. And I, and I started doing that slowly. Uh, and then uh, trust, I, you know, I, I really wanted a sponsor. You know, I thought sponsor would make all the big difference in the world. And I'd find somebody in a meeting, some older gentleman that, that looked like he had what I wanted. But within a couple of weeks, you know, he'd be... I'd hear him sharing gossip, you know, or, or doing something that said, well, okay, he's out. And the other thing that happens is these guys would die. I mean, a bunch of them died on me. I'm thinking, wow, do I carry the disease or what? You know, I just think about them being a sponsor and they die. <laughs> so uh, I, I just plugged along. I got really active in service. Uh, when I had like 35 days sober, they uh, they did an announcement that uh, uh, the central office needed people to fold, fold newsletters. So I, I figured, I can do that. I can't do much else. You know, I couldn't go back to my regular job because when I didn't drink, my hands shook like this. You know, And I worked with knives. Nobody wants to hire you to work with knives when your hands are shaking like this. So I couldn't work. So, But I could fold newsletters. So I started doing that. And then... Uh, and then uh, the manager of the central office passed away. And uh, somebody else took over, and I started doing phones there. And I started getting real active at, at the inner group. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I started getting active in general service as I got a little more time and, and started getting real busy in service. And that's, I think, a lot of what kept me sober until I could start working the steps. Uh, when I, and you know, and I, I looked hard for God. You know, I really wanted, I wanted a, I wanted God. And so I'd, I'd try to check out all these different religions and stuff, and, and I, just nothing was happening. Nothing was going on. I, I couldn't feel anything. And one day I was in a meeting, and there was a Catholic priest who was sharing. He was, he was a, you know, an AA speaker, and he started talking about how uh, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are not the first people to try to walk a spiritual path. This has been going on for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and God doesn't care what you call God. All you got to do is believe, and God's right there for you. Well, my keen alcoholic mind construed that to mean that it doesn't matter if there's a God or not. All you got to do is find something you believe in, and believe. And I'd always been looking for 
know, capital G, little O.D., the white-haired guy on the throne up in the clouds. And I just didn't believe it was there, so I never found it. So I started listening to what people were talking about in meetings, and a lot of people were talking about a higher power. They weren't saying God, big G, little O.D. They were saying a higher power, just a power greater than themselves. So I started looking for a power greater than myself that can help me stay sober. And the first one I found was music. Because I realized music could make me happy, could make me sad, could make me glad, could make me mad. It could change the way I felt. So basically, I turned my will in my life over to the care of Bob Marley and the Whalers. <laughs> you know, and I stayed sober. Mm. You, know, um, you know, my higher power has changed a lot over the years. You know, I, you know and I, I never did pray to Bob Marley, just in case you're curious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, you know, after... After a while, I, I joined a clean and sober motorcycle club, and, and that patch on my back became my higher power. Then motorcycles in general became my higher power. and You know, it, it's changed a lot. And my current higher power, I kind of got, got the name from a, a Native American speaker. He was talking one day about, a, about his higher power, and he called it the Great Mystery. And that works. Re- that was, sent bells off in my head, because God to me is a total mystery. I can't figure out how God figures stuff out. How does God reconcile stuff? You know, I mean, on one hand, we've got cancer and famine and uh, war and child molesters and, you know, all this crap in the world. And on the other hand, we got, you know, springtime in, in the desert, sunsets, sunrises, uh, children laughing, lasagna, you know, all these good things in the world. How does God put this shit together and make it work? Total mystery to me, so... Uh, that's kind of my concept now, is God's a mystery. And, I, and I'm good with that. Anyway, uh, when I was about seven years sober, I still had yet to work the steps. I still had yet to find a sponsor. And my life was getting really miserable. You know, uh, in fact, there was a, there was a, I kind of got sober at this Alano club. And uh, I'd go to the noon meeting every day, and, and they, they used to make a joke there. Uh, that there was a misprint in the fifth chapter. That what it really says is many of us tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was kneel until we let go absolutely. <laughs> you know, because I didn't change anything. You know, and nothing was changing. You know, I was just, all I was doing was not drinking and not using drugs. I was still a prick. I was still a jerk, you know. Anyway, it got to the point of not working the steps and not finding, not trusting somebody became... More painful than doing it. So I found a man that I that I decided to trust. You know, I didn't trust him right away, but I decided to do that. I chose to trust him, and I started working the steps. And uh, step one was an incredibly simple step for me. Uh, I knew I was powerless over alcohol. Uh, you know, I couldn't stay away from a drink for eight hours, even if I was asleep for six of them. You know. I mean, I drank. That's what I did. If you ask me what I do, I say, well, I drink a lot, you know, because that's what I did. And so I, I knew I was powerless over alcohol, so that part was easy. And I knew my life was unmanageable. I'm living in a bread truck, you know. And when I got sober, I was unemployable. I, my life is definitely unmanageable. But I should also add that that step has changed over the years. Uh, by working the rest of the steps... I've tapped a source of power greater than myself that gives me limited power over alcohol. You know, as long as I don't put it inside me, I can do almost anything else with it. You know, 
as long as I don't put it inside me and that higher power gives me the strength to not put it inside me. And my God, and you know, my life is still unmanageable by me. I can't run it. Uh, but in the third step, I turned it over to a power greater than myself. You know, so I'm not managing my life anymore. And that's real, real comforting for me. And anyway, the second step came around. Like I said, you know, I'd, I'd had that problem with God, and I finally, I finally reconciled it with this great mystery. And the second part of the step was really easy also. I went by the definition of insanity that the big book uses. And that is just simply picking up that first drink. That's insane. So when I pick up a drink, I don't know where I'm going, what I'm going to do, who I'm going to do it with. I mean, I virtually turn over my entire life to, to alcohol. You know, I, I, that's insane. That's stupid. You know, so I, I bought right into that definition of insanity. It's real easy. And the third step, uh, I love that step. For me, it was a freedom step. Because I believe when I turned my will and life over to the care of God, I did exactly that. I turned my will and my life over to the care of God. It's no longer my business. God is running my life. And God's doing a damn good job, I might add. Uh, I can't, where I am right now, I can't, I couldn't have even imagined when I was drinking. I couldn't imagine how good life is. You know, God's done a really good job with me. And the fourth step, uh, you know, every time I'd been in treatment, they kind of make you go through the five, first five steps. And you do a fourth and fifth step with them. And so I'd done quite a few fourth steps. But there were always these things that I didn't tell. You know, the stuff I left out. The stuff I was going to carry to my grave with me. Because I was so ashamed of it. Well, this last time, uh, when I finally got a real sponsor and, and did it with him, I was able to get that stuff out. I was able to tell him my deepest, darkest secrets. And we did uh, we did my fifth step at his house. And, and I remember leaving there. He He lived up kind of elevated off the street. There was a bunch of steps that went down to the street where my motorcycle was. And, and I remember after it was all over with going down and I don't remember my feet touching the ground. You know, And I'm not saying I levitated or anything, but there was such a weight gone off of my shoulders that I, I, I just don't I, don't, I don't remember touching the ground. I was so light. And, and I did the, after that, I did it just like the book says. Uh, you know, I went home. I pulled the big book off the shelf. I reviewed the first five steps, made sure I did it right. And uh, then it says to ask yourself if, if you're ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And that was another simple step for me because my answer was a resounding hell yes. Because for the first time in my life, I found out who Neil was. And I didn't like Neil. I didn't like anything about me. I was more than willing for God to take this stuff away. You know, make me a new person. So that was an incredibly easy step, which led me into the seventh step. Uh, and I love that seventh step prayer that we have in the book. It says, take from me every single defect of character that stands in my the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. So what that tells me is that God's not going to take all my defects away. Because some of them he's going to turn around and use. You know, and I, I have no way of knowing how that is. You know, I could come walking in here ranting and raving in self-righteous anger and some new newcomer could look at me and say, you know, if that bastard can stay sober, so can I. <laughs> you know, and that's just God taking my defect and turning it into God's asset. 
You know, and God does that stuff. You know, it's real, real trippy to watch it in other people. I don't like seeing it myself, but <laughs> but it's trippy to watch it in other people. And then in the eighth step, uh, you know, I, I had a I had a partial list from my fourth step, and my sponsor helped me add people and subtract people, and and then in the ninth step, when I started making amends, most of my amends were financial. You know, the vast majority of them were. And uh, and so I started paying people back, and there's still a couple I haven't made. I haven't found the people, you know. And it's been a lot of time. I I suspect they're dead. I don't know. And there were other amends that I didn't think I could make. Uh, you know, like I had, when I was uh, 17 years old, I fathered a, a girl, and that girl was put up for adoption. And when I got sober and started wanting to make amends, I I thought I wanted to go find her and make amends to her. And I was told in no uncertain terms that she is none of my business. You know, when she was put up for adoption, I gave up every right to anything that had to do with her. And I had no right to look for her, and, and the records were sealed anyway, and blah, blah, blah. So I didn't know how to, how do you make amends to somebody like that, you know. And what I did is I joined Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. And I started being a positive role model to, to little boys that don't have a male in their life. You know, and that's how I made those amends. Uh, there, were, there were general amends that I had to make. Because I, I, I was a taker when I was out there, you know. I took from everybody and everything. And so in order to make amends, I had to start giving back. And so, like, I, I joined a Red Cross, started doing disaster mass feeding, you know, feeding people during disasters. Uh, you know, I joined the, the search and rescue in the county I belonged to. You know, just trying to give back to the communities because I had taken so much. And I just had to give back any way that I could, and I had to be creative about it. You know, my sponsor was real good at, at helping me with that, you know. In um, 10th step, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I used to be real good with uh, taking an inventory every night before I go to bed. But, you know, I'm kind of slacked off on that. <laughs> you know, and a lot of that, I'm getting away with it because uh, in the ninth step, one of the things I found out is I don't like making amends. You know, I don't, I don't like the humiliation and, and the shame that comes with it. And uh, so as part of my tenth step, I don't have that behavior that I need to make amends for anymore. You know, my, I've cleaned up my act a whole lot. <laughs> Because I don't like making amends, you know. So I don't do the things that create situations where I have to make amends. So it, it's not a real pressing thing in my life anymore. Doing that nightly inventory. And the eleventh step, uh, you know, when I got here, I I didn't know how to pray. You know, I remembered little bits of prayer from my childhood, and that was it. And. Uh, Somebody said to me, well, when you go to bed at night, thank whatever's out there for the fact you didn't drink today. So I started doing that. And pretty soon I, it, it was real easy to add to it, you know. Thanks for the food I had today. Thanks for the roof over my head. You know, thanks for the meeting I went to. Thanks for the people I met. If I had a job, thanks for the job. If I didn't have a job, thanks for not making me go to work today. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, I learned to pray through prayers of gratitude. And... Uh, even today, probably 80% of my prayers are still prayers of gratitude because I've really been blessed. You know, and 
but when I started, they were all prayers of gratitude until I got into the steps where I started praying for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. And then about uh, 12, about 11 years ago, well, one thing I really love doing is camping. I've always loved camping, and, and I especially love AA campouts. And uh, 11 years ago, I was at a campout up on the Hopi Reservation. And uh, a couple of the natives up there kept harassing me all week and saying, Hey, Neil, why don't you go into that sweat lodge? And I, I man, I can't go in there. What, what am I going to do in a sweat lodge? I'm white, you know? And they say things like, well, don't worry, it's dark in there. Nobody will notice. <laughs> Finally, Sunday morning, they wake me up at 4 o'clock in the morning to tell me that there's going to be a sunrise sweat. Get ready. And I say, okay, screw this. I'll go in just to get them off my back. And quite simply, it changed my life. Uh, it taught me a new way to pray. It taught me to pray for other people, which I had never really considered before. I mean, I little things like, God, help him not drink right now because he's pissed off. You know, little things like that, but not to just, but not to pray for everyone, you know, pray for people. And so I learned that in there. And, uh, and the meditation part, you know, when I got here, I really wanted, I wanted this program. So I, I wanted to learn to meditate right away. So I'd get up in the morning. Somebody had told me that meditation is quieting your mind. So I'd get up in the morning, I'd knock down five or six cups of coffee, and I'd sit there and try to quiet my mind. <laughs> and it didn't work. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how long I'd been sober, but I was at an out-of-town meeting where they do a, a full minute of silence before the serenity prayer. And I remember them calling for a minute of silence and sitting there. And the next thing I know, they're starting the prayer. I'm going, wow. My mind was just quiet for an entire moment, a whole minute. And that started meditation for me because I realized it could be done. And uh, I've learned there's a lot of ways to meditate. Uh, you know, just listening is meditation. Reading can be meditation. Uh, fishing can be meditation. I heard a rumor that golf can be meditation too. I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> but, uh, riding a motorcycle is meditation, you know, because... When you're on a bike, you got to be right here, right now. You know, you can't be anywhere else or you'll be dead. You know, the blue-haired lady from Sun City will get you, you know. Uh, and sitting in the sweat lodge is meditation because I, I go in with native people and they, they speak in their own tongue. I don't speak Dene or Zuni or Atam or any of those languages. My ears don't even understand. My brain just doesn't. So all I can do is listen. And what I found is that even though my ears don't pick it up, my heart does. You know, because it's prayer. And it's the language of the heart. Anyway, in the 12th step, uh, I discovered real early that I'm not really good with traditional 12-step calls. I One of the things I found out right away is I don't like drunks. You know, I don't like wet drunks. I want to take my big book and just whap them upside the head and say, read this damn book, you know. <laughs> And that doesn't go over well. <laughs> so uh, I, I started learning to be of service in other ways. You know, uh, you know, like general service. Uh, when I moved to Arizona, uh, a couple of the guys here found out that I used to cook for a living. And they invited me to start cooking with them for Alcoholics Anonymous. 
and I just had a blast. We do sometimes 12 events a year, you know, where we just cook big meals for AA functions and we'd meet people, and, and it was just a wonderful way to be a service. You know, it's a... Uh, right now, I'm not doing any service at all because of uh, basically because my work situation, and I'm not complaining about my work situation. Believe me, uh, I get to spend my summers in Alaska and my winters down here. You know, I mean, when I'm up there, I don't have to feel triple digits in temperature, and when I'm down here, I don't feel forty below zero. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's I'm really blessed, and they I, get, I have a job in both ends. Anyway, I'm real grateful to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because when I am in Alaska, I don't get to very many meetings. The closest meeting, there's two meetings a week, an hour away, and chances are I work during those times. Like this last summer, I got to that Talkeetna meeting, I got to it once in five months. You know, and, and what I do is when I get a couple days off in a row, I'll, I'll either go down to Wasilla or Anchorage or, or up to Fairbanks and catch meetings because they got meetings all day in those places. But uh, I'm real glad to be back in Arizona where you know, there's more than a thousand meetings a week within an hour of where I live. You know, I mean, that's just wonderful. <laughs> you know, when you... And it, it, it kind of annoys me to hear people whine about yeah, I don't like this meeting. Oh, God, there's a thousand of them. Go to one. You know? I mean, I just came from a place where the closest meeting's an hour away. You know? And, and here you got them 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 20 minutes. You know, it just, it annoys me. But that's my problem. <laughs> anyway, I think that's all I've got. Uh, thank you for feeding me dinner. And uh, happy holidays. Thank you, Neil.